Hey everyone, I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. Congresswoman Debbie Dingell is a lifelong Democrat from what used to be the blue state of Michigan. But unlike anyone else in her party, she saw President Trump coming. And while the nation tries to figure out how to deal with its new president, Dingell is trying to figure out how to deal with her party. But I don't know where I belong. I've said that. I sometimes feel like I have no home even in the Democratic caucus here. Dingle diagnoses the party's problems and talks about how to solve them, but we started off by talking about the shooting of congressional Republicans and staffers on a baseball field in Alexandria, Virginia. Congresswoman Dingle, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Oh, it's wonderful to be with you. You are, your work is really so good and you always have good perspectives that we all need to be thinking about. So thank you for inviting me to be your guest. Well, thank you. Uh, I wanted to start by asking you um, to talk about what happened to your Republican colleagues who were out on a ball field in Alexandria, Virginia, practicing for the charity base, the bipartisan charity baseball game, and a gunman decided to target them for murder. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it. You know, I was sitting in my office because I'm one of those people that gets to the office at 6 a.m. And as the early reports came in, I think people didn't understand exactly what it was, but I knew exactly where the park was and who was playing there. So I was instantly horrified. Uh, There are three members of the Michigan delegation that are members of that baseball team. So I was deeply scared about whether my friends were okay. And it also immediately reinforced with me that we've got to figure out a way to tone down the rhetoric, that we have to stop this demonization of each other. I was praying at the time that everybody was safe, that nobody was hurt, but it was for me a reflection of what's happening to these times and that we have to do something to get the level of rhetoric lowered in this country. How do do we do that? Because it seems like every time we have a situation like this, everyone focuses on the culture, they focus on the rhetoric, um, which are all, you know, they all contribute. And then we always seem to revert back to where we were before. We have to not point fingers and all take responsibility. Interestingly enough, if you go to my Facebook page, you will see that I did a rant. Now, I'm not your typical Facebook poster because, or member because I do my own on my um, personal page. And I, you know, staff always says do two or three sentences and I will do several paragraphs. But last weekend prior to this, uh, I live in Dearborn, Michigan. It's my hometown and it has the largest population of Muslims in the country. There were people saying that Dearborn had Sharia law it does not have Sharia law. It will never have Sharia law. And I, all I did was tell the facts. There isn't Sharia law in Dearborn. And to talk about what a great diverse community we have. And the hate mail, the hate messages that came in on my Facebook page were really disturbing and quite frankly unacceptable. And I know that everybody says don't read it and everybody says don't respond, but I did. I didn't do it in a negative way, but I told people that I was upset 
about the tone of the notes and how we had to stop doing this and that we have to find a way to respect each other, to listen to each other. It would be boring if we agreed on everything. We need to have intellectual disagreements, but we have to tell each other it's not acceptable. When people take to this demonization, they don't tell the truth. Each of us has got a responsibility to say, what you're saying to me isn't okay. And I'm gonna keep doing that now. How is it possible to have an intellectual conversation, even when we disagree, when we're in this era of so-called fake news, where no one trusts anything that they read or that they hear, even if it is the truth? Like today, I bet you could walk up to someone and say, you know, two plus two equals four. And someone will say that that's fake news. I, there is clearly a, a real problem on that. There is such a level of distrust. But if we stop trying to fix it, if we stop trying to work at it, then we're accepting. It becomes a new norm that to me is absolutely unacceptable. So if we know something's not true, we need to call people on telling them that it's not true. If somebody takes a tone or an approach or an attitude that is hostile, demonizes, tries to divide us with fear and hatred, is rude, not respectful, then we need to take a deep breath and say, what you're saying offends me. And we've got to both work at communicating with each other better. Those hate messages that you got from people on your Facebook page where they talked about um, Sharia law being instituted in Dearborn, Michigan. And as you said, your, your district has a sizable Muslim population. How does, that, how does that even work? Are these people who are saying these things writing from elsewhere, or are they people from within the district, do you think? So obviously we don't know where everybody comes from that responds to us or posts on our Facebook page. I would guess that most of them are from outside of the district. And after I posted my note on Sunday night, most of the posts that came after that were very supportive and actually made you feel pretty good. I am sure that there, every place that we live, there are people that are upset, that are afraid. You know, and we have to take the time to understand where people are coming from, to understand. As you know, I'm somebody who said Donald Trump could win. I'm somebody who kept saying Michigan is not a for sure democratic state. And we're going and we're going to talk, talk about, about that. that. But what I understood was people aren't racist. People aren't all those different name callings that people and I'm now calling people on saying don't call people a racist. They're afraid. They've spent a lifetime working putting money into a pension so that all they wanted to do was to retire and be secure. And those pensions are suddenly not there. They're underfunded. The Teamsters are threatening to cut the central pension fund. And I've got a very sizable number of Teamsters in my district whose pensions are going to be cut 60 to 70 percent. And these people suddenly don't know how they're going to live. We need to put ourselves in other people's shoes and understand where their fear is coming from. But they need to put their feet in other people's shoes and understand what it's like not to be able to find a job, to want to educate their kids and not have a good school system. We have to really try to understand each other's perspectives and why we feel the way we feel. You know, I'm glad you, you mentioned a, a lot of things there. And, and before I get to what you just said, I want to bring you back to um, um, your district and Muslims in your district. Um, what do you hear from them? 
when things like this pop up about Sharia law being instituted in their hometown or this fear of Muslims in the country in general? You know, they're very afraid. Now, look, they're, it, it, this is all very complicated, and quite frankly, this past week we've seen uh, ICE doing very serious raids against Christians, or it, 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 people that have been in this country for 30 or 40 years have abided by, have paperwork, have been legal, have checked in regularly with ICE, ha, may have been, a, and each case is different, not defending any of the cases, uh, but possession of marijuana, they've served their time, and because they checked in regularly, ICE knows where they lived, and they're now being picked up, and they're being sent back to Iraq as Christians to a certain death. Uh, so we're all concerned about that, the Muslims and the uh, are Christians. Muslims are afraid. They're afraid that people are demonizing them. They're afraid that uh, something, somebody could physically attack them. I think that the story that unfortunately, I wish I could tell you I've just heard once, but probably since January, I've heard 30 different times, is young children. Uh, I remember when the first one did it, it was a, a, a young girl who was crying in my arms, afraid that someone, by the way, all these children are American citizens. They were born in this country, they have passports. Many of them's parents have passports. They're not only second generation, some of them are third generation, afraid that someone's gonna knock on the door in the middle of the night, drag them from their homes and deport them. There's real fear in this community. So um, you talked very passionately a moment ago about the fear and anxiety, the economic anxiety of, of people, uh, how no one listened to you when you said, you know, Donald Trump can win and Donald Trump could win Michigan. How did you know that, because that, you called this very early, one of the things I try to do when I'm home every weekend is to get out and be out and be with my constituents. I try to always ensure I'm in a union hall every weekend or with a group of you know, working men and women. I go to farmer's markets. I go to the fairs. I go to the festivals. I try to really be there at a grassroots level. And I think that people don't understand the fear and anxiety that is in people's hearts from what happened in the auto industry in 2008, 2009. People are afraid that their jobs could disappear at any moment. People have seen their jobs shipped overseas and are, know that those jobs are never coming back. Add to that now these recent pension issues, the Teamsters being the most recent. People are afraid that their health care is not gonna be there. Their homes are still underwater. While everybody says the auto industry is stronger, the reality is that their income has not kept pace with, uh, they've got stagnant wages. So you hear this anxiety in people, you know they're scared, and they don't think Democrats get it or talk about their problems. They don't think we understand them. I wanna read you a quote from um, George Mason University professor Justin Guest, who's been a, a guest on this podcast a few episodes ago. Uh, and it's all about the white working class. The name of his book is called The New Minority. And he writes, white working class people are consumed by their loss of societal and political status in social hierarchies, particularly in relation to immigrant and minority reference groups. Their politics are motivated by and pervaded by a nostalgia that reveres and seeks to reinstate a bygone era. 
Do you see that in in your district? Does that ring true for you? I don't want to call it a bygone era that there. I think, and I've said this, I've repeatedly said this, many of my constituents don't want a lot. They want to have a job that's going to allow them to make enough money to be able to buy a house in a safe neighborhood, to be able to put food on the table, to be able to educate their kids, to be able to go to the doctor, afford to go to the doctor when they need to go to the doctor, be able to buy the medicine that they need to buy, and to save enough to have a secure retirement. Now, is that no longer the status quo in this country? I, that's what the middle class dream really was for a long time. So, I, I, you know, Henry Ford, when he started Ford Motor Company in the early 20s, recognized that if you paid a worker a decent wage, then they would be making enough money to put money back into the economy, and that we would all rise if everybody did well. I don't, I think what we need to do is to be encouraging an economy that creates jobs for everybody, that allows them to make enough money so that they are putting money back into the economy. I don't think it has to be an either or. And I think there's something right now about our society, our culture, which keeps trying to pit people against each other instead of realizing that our strength comes in we in community. So what's the Democrats' problem? Why can't Democrats come up with a message that says exactly what you just said? I've had a lot of very intense discussions with my colleagues who I fortunately really respect. So we're not afraid to have the tough conversations. They're clearly the Democratic parties dominated on both sides by coastal um, states that tend to have different interests than the Midwest. Uh, But I think we've got to find a way to talk about those jobs, to talk about trade. Trade, I I will tell you, I personally believe the single biggest reason that Donald Trump won was because he talked about trade and trade policies. And he understood that people were worried that their jobs had been shipped overseas or could be shipped overseas at any time, and that they didn't see a government that cared about them. Fact of the matter is, especially in the Midwest, in my sector, the auto industry, NAFTA autos were a loser. Now you had a TPP deal, which was going to do the same thing. So you were against TPP. I was against TPP from the very beginning. But I had to be the easiest person in the country because uh, before I was ever sworn in, everybody thought, oh, she's going to support. The auto industry and the unions were opposed to TPP because it really hurt the auto industry. It didn't treat people fairly or put people on a level playing field. I mean, we need to do something about currency manipulation. Other governments, China and Japan, are advocates for their companies. Why can't our government be an advocate for us? The story I repeatedly tell is because of currency manipulation in Japan. A vehicle coming into this country from Japan has an $8,000 cost differential just because of that currency manipulation. Ford, uh, I'm not going to name any individual Japanese companies, but a number of Japanese companies made more money just on currency manipulation versus what Ford did in their worldwide operations. So Trump's right? I have said that I would work with Donald Trump on the reopening of NAFTA. There are issues that have to be addressed. And I think, by the way, that we've got a responsibility to work together, that there are issues that we need to address for this economy, and we've got to stop making them partisan, and that our job is to work together to fix them.
The Democratic Party right now seems to be at war with itself. There's the establishment wing um, personified, I guess, by the current Democratic Party chair, Tom Perez. And then there's the Bernie wing of the Democratic Party, um, so-called the far left wing of the Democratic Party. Um, who has who has the right message for where the party needs to be? You know, it's uh, I, this is going to sound very funny coming from me because I'm not sure where I fit in because I'm not exactly establishment, as we all know. Nobody, I mean, I was pretty vocal in how I felt and was being discounted at that point. People are now listening. Uh, I think we have to get much. More, I, I agree with Bernie and Elizabeth on many issues. Uh, and actually have been out there for a long time on many of them, like trade. But I, don't f I do agree that the Democratic Party is in disarray. And if we don't figure out how we're going to pull ourselves together, and if we don't figure out how we're going to be a voice for those that need us to be a voice, but also become a voice again for working men and women in this country, we are going to continue to be in disarray. But I don't know where I belong. I've said that. I sometimes feel like I have no home even in the Democratic caucus here. And somebody said to me the other day when I said that, that's how the voters that didn't vote for us feel. We've got to figure out how to make them feel like we do here. So, and there is a So place. then um, let's say you're chair of the Democratic Party for a week, because I would say a day, but you're going to need a lot more time. So for a week. What would be the three things you would do immediately to make the Democratic Party into a party that um, feels like home to you and has a message that reaches out to those voters who turn their back on the Democratic Party? We have to talk about jobs in the economy and trade, first and foremost, and how we're going to be a voice for working men and women and that we want them in this party. We have to find a way that it's not either or on the environment. We've got to protect the environment. I, there's been nobody that's been more vocal, and I quite frankly was stunned when Donald Trump pulled out of the Paris Agreement. But as naive as this may sound, I'd really love to bring permanent peace between California and Michigan. <laughs> and I know, but I don't, we gotta stop demonizing each other. The co automobile companies need economic and political certainty. Governor Brown is a real heavy. If California agrees to certain standards, that means the environmentalist community is going to like them. But if everybody agrees, as they did on the fuel economy standards, then the companies have what they need, which is economic and political certainty. We've got to work to doing that more rather than having this constant distrust of each other. So then why? It all makes, common, it all makes perfect sense. So then why don't you think your message is getting through? Well, I think, first of all, we're in the minority, uh, and uh, everybody's very frustrated. There are lots, everybody wants to be a chief, and we haven't learned that our strength comes in being a we, and that we've got to all come together as one community. I'm really proud if you go into Michigan, I didn't do anything by myself, but the 12th Congressional District, because we were we, wasn't one person, it was all of us working together. We're the only county that increased votes over Obama numbers for the presidential, and the only pickup in the state house was in our district, which was the only Republican seat, which we brought back to being Democratic. So if you work together and you don't, can get rid of that ego and understand your strength is in we, 
you can win. You know, um, a, a person at a think tank uh, at Third Way had a very interesting analogy that she talked about when talking about the difference between Democrats and Republicans. She said that in the general election, de Republicans talk to the nation as if they're a jury in a closing, get, delivering a closing argument a broad brush message that they hope the jury will, will buy. Whereas Democrats talk to each individual juror. You're a woman, I've got a message for you. You're African American, I have a message for you. You're LGBT, I have a message for you. Um, you're disabled, I have a message for you. Oh, you're a white male. Um, you, you didn't talk to white males. Right, you're you you don't you're not here. You don't you don't belong here. How do you change that mindset and and that culture? Because I see it. I've I've even heard it. People are now talking about the fact that, um, you know, for a lot of folks in the Democratic Party, why do we want them in the party to begin with? The Democrat Party needs to have everybody, and we need that white male that we didn't talk to. We've got to stop. I agree with whoever this person was <laughs> that said that, because we've got to stop targeting people just because of one of the reasons Hillary Clinton lost Michigan for the primary, not the general, that's a different discussion, was that she figured she was going to win by doing the I-75 corridor and only work Detroit and Flint. We got to, even the way that presidential candidates work the state or work people pits them against each other instead of building that jury, as you call it, or I call it the community that's the strength of democracy. We've got to start to find a way that we stop pitting each other against each other and we start to build that unity. And until we do, and by the way, we took people for granted. We for a long time thought, you know, we had that worker, men and women, that union worker. We've lost them because we stopped talking to them. They don't think we care about them anymore. And quite frankly, the Democratic Party has lost track of what they need. And we need to be the voice or we need to talk to all working men and women. Should Bernie Sanders be officially a member of the Democratic Party if he's going to dictate what the Democratic Party should be doing or shouldn't be doing? I. Look, I'm somebody who thinks these labels don't mean a lot. Okay, I, I don't even know what the Democratic Party is in Michigan or the D Democratic Party here is in Washington. How many members does it really reflect? What are they? I, if he's going to help connect with working men and women, uh, he wants to run for president and he's going to run on the Democratic ticket, he's a Democrat. So I, I, semantics to me aren't as important right now as they are to really worrying about what the policies are that we are out there pushing and how do we connect those working men and women so that we win a majority again so we're delivering for people who need us to deliver. There are really bad things happening in this country right now that I'm scared about and that's what I'm worried about. Congresswoman Debbie Dingell of the great state of Michigan, thank you very much for being here. Thank you, it was great being with you and let's keep talking. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. 
Like, can he do that? With Allison Michaels, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Other, Mixed Race in America, a mini-series of stories to make you think about race, identity, and what it means to be an American. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.